Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Well, good morning. So good to be here. Aren't you thankful we serve a God that turns graves into gardens? I uh, think of that every time I do a graveside. Pastors do gravesides. I always think about the fact that if you don't know the Lord, death looks like the cosmic stop sign, like everything is over. But we know the Lord and we know that uh, God turns graves into gardens. Uh, it's not the end. Um, I, I want to take a minute. I know, I know guest speakers often do this and your pastor's so humble, I'll probably make him real uncomfortable, but I want you to know what a blessing you have in Pastor Ryan. Um, I, he's, he's an amazing pastor. And great pastors draw great pastoral staffs. You, the rest of your pastoral staff is wonderful as well, but I, I, I want to tell you something. I, I could be wrong about this, but I believe we're living in the last days. Um, I was, uh, you know, we're two hours earlier here than in Kansas where I come from. So I watched my dad's message this morning. My dad's a senior pastor of the church where I serve. He's been there for 39 years. And um, he was preaching about the, uh, he's preaching through Revelation. And I thought to myself, you know, everything is lining up. It's all lining up. But this is not a time for the church to hunker down and wait for the Lord to return. This is a time for us to take ground for God. I think God opens a door during the last days for us where we'll be able to be even more successful than we've ever been before. I'm thankful that Liberty Baptist Church is taking ground for Jesus in these last days. And I'm thankful for you and everything that you're doing here. This is my first time here. And what a joy and a and just a, man, it's been so wonderful to be here with you. Uh, I want to talk to you this morning about a Christian with burnout. Burnout is my area of, of uh, research. So I'm both a pastor, I, I do that full time, but I'm also a, re, a, a university professor. I oversee a, pro, a Master of Science and General Psychology program at Regent University. And I also am an active researcher. And the research that I do is in the field of burnout. And I'll tell you a little bit why, about why a little later on. Um, but I do think that Christians get burned out. I think I can make a good, good case for that. I think what's challenging is that often we think only weak people get burned out. I want to make a case to you this morning that the strongest of Christians can get burned out. And when we get exhausted, Satan has us right where he wants us. See, the thing about it is Satan wants you to treat yourself like someone who has infinite energy. And in our culture, as many things as we have going on, man, I used to do marriage counseling. I did it for 13 years. And one of the things I would always be amazed at is I would talk to a couple and they would say, well, you know, we work full time, both of us, and then our kids are both in sports. Saturdays, one of us goes to Kansas City, the other one goes to Oklahoma City, and we do the sports tournaments and there's extra practices and all of that. And then we try to make church on Sunday morning, but then there's more practices on Sunday. And then we have this thing, and we've got this thing, and we've got this thing. And I used to make them draw out how many hours in the day. Like you have 24 hours. I'm assuming most of y'all have 24 hours. That's how much I have. I'd like to have a little more than that. We draw it out and try to figure out like where all those commitments were coming out of. And we would always end up with a deficit that there was actually less time than what they needed. And Satan loves it when we have less time than what we need, where we over obligate ourselves, overextend ourselves to the point where, and by the way, you can do this with ministry. 
right? Sometimes in churches, I know it's not the way here, thank the Lord, and it's not the way at the church that I serve, but there are some churches where only about 4%, that's the number, only about 4% do the work of the church. I'm talking about volunteers and staff. And 96% are consumers. And those 4%, they are absolutely on a road to burnout. You can do it, you can get burned out doing the best things. You don't have to do bad things to get burned out. You can get burned out doing the best things. So I want to talk to you about it. And, and by the way, lest you think that this is a not a, not a big deal. I want to try to describe for you what the experience of burnout is like. Um, and, and to do that, let me tell you a quick story. My wife booked a uh, day trip for myself and my wife and, the two, and our two daughters. Um, this has been four or five years ago, so my eldest would have been getting ready to go into high school and my youngest probably um, in, uh, in grade school still. And uh, my wife just thought it'd be good to do a day trip, a, a, a kind of touristy kind of thing. So she looked around in Kansas. Now, here's the, I know that you probably think that Kansas is a tourist destination. You hear about all those mobs going to Kansas to do things touristy-wise, but there's really not a whole lot to do. I hate to break it to you, there's just not a lot. But it turns out there is a, a world-famous salt mine in Kansas um, that you can go to. And I say it's world-famous because there are things stored in that mine that you would not believe. National treasures are stored there, and the reason is because the humidity is constant, never changes, the temperature is constant, never changes, so it turns out to be a perfect place. There, there are um, famous sitcoms where the original film, 35 millimeter film, is stored in that cave, a bunch of other things, things the Smithsonian has rights to. Um, it's a big deal. And so my wife said, we're going to go there. And I said, great. So we go over there, and they, they say, all right, now we're getting ready to take you 650 feet underground. I struggled with that a little bit. <laughs> The thing is, I always knew I was afraid of heights. I now learned I was afraid of depths as well. Like, that's a whole new phobia. I didn't even know that you could have that, you know? And they put us in this tiny little elevator and take us down 650 feet. And when I walked down, when I walked into the belly of that cave, well, you know what? Usually when they put you underground, you realize they put you underground because you're dead. And I'm like, not only am I experiencing this while I'm alive, but I'm a hundred times deeper than a dead person is. That's, that's worrisome, you know? And we go down there and we take the tour. Now my wife says, let's take a selfie. I almost sent the picture to y'all to put up on the screens. She said, let's take a selfie, because I promise if you look at that picture, you will see my wife's real smile, and you'll see my smile that looks like this. I'm not, I'm, I'm not enjoying it. I didn't enjoy the whole tour. But when they took us on this tour, and they take you through in a little vehicle and, and, and all of that, it's the same thing, by the way, if you go to Branson, Missouri and, and tour the caverns. Wherever you go that's underground, they always want to do this. Every tour guide always wants to do this. I don't understand why, but they always want to do it. And that is at some point they will turn off all the lights. And the reason they do that is because most of us have never really experienced complete darkness. We experience dark, but there's still light bouncing around somewhere. And the idea of being someplace where there is literally no way for the sun to get in, no way for light to get in, when you see that kind of darkness, it is completely different. And they will tell you, if you put your hand a centimeter from your face, you will not see anything. And when you try it, it's freaky. It is freaky when you realize it is completely dark, I can't see a thing. Some of you in this room know there is an emotional darkness that we go through sometimes that is kind of freaky. It's darkness that is, that is weird, it's uncomfortable, it's unsettling. You know, when, when you're in the dark, like when you're a kid, if you're scared of the dark, one of the biggest challenges with being in the dark is you don't know what's real anymore. Like, you're scared of things that don't exist. You know what I mean? Like, I, as, a, as a sufferer with anxiety, I'll tell you one of the biggest challenges, if you suffer with anxiety like I do, is that I, I will spend emotional energy and time on things that are never going to materialize. That's part of darkness, is that there are things that aren't real, but we think they might be real because we can't tell it's dark. 
And then on top of that, it, we lose our reference for what is there, right? My parents would be in the room right next to me when I was a little kid. They're right there. They would take care of me if anything happened, but it's dark and I don't see them. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't see them, so I don't realize the resources that I do have. Problem with when we get into emotional darkness is we forget what we have to help us out, and we start to struggle with worries about things that may not even, I don't know if anybody in here has experienced this, but that's been my life. I start to worry about things that may, may never even materialize. I wish I could get half of the moments of my life back that I spent worrying about things that never happened. We think about the plagues in Exodus. You think about the locusts and the frogs. How could you forget the frogs? That's a very memorable plague, right? But don't forget that one of the plagues was darkness. Do you remember that? And the Lord said unto Moses, this is Exodus 10, 21, stretch out thine hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. What's the next phrase, church? Even darkness which may be felt. There will be a season of your life. If you haven't experienced it yet, that is fantastic, but it's coming. There'll be a season of your life where you'll go through a darkness that is so, that is so dark, you'll feel it. You won't just see it, you'll feel it. So I want to talk to you about the fact that even a strong Christian can go through the darkness of exhaustion. Really, when we talk about burnout, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about exhaustion. By the way, when I say exhaustion, I don't mean being tired. We use those terms interchangeably. I'll come home and tell Wendy, I'll say, man, I'm really exhausted. No, we, we, we mean I'm tired. I'm fatigued. And tired is a normal part of the life cycle. I'm going to be tired sometimes. And that tiredness tells me I need to rest, right? God showed us that rest is important. There wouldn't have been a seventh day in the creation cycle if rest hadn't been important. But unfortunately, some of us are not following that example very much. Um, but we get tired. There's a difference between being tired and being exhausted. Exhausted means to be completely used up. To be, if, if I think of it as like the gas tank in my car, being tired is like when the gas light comes on and says, you need to fill up. Being exhausted is like being on the side of the road because your car literally will not go any farther because you're completely out. And it is possible because we are finite beings, it is possible to ignore the tired warning. I don't raise your hand, but how many of us are used to turning off the warning. You know how pilots on, sometimes you'll watch a show about a documentary about pilots and they'll, they'll, they'll hear a warning and they'll go, well, I know what that's about and they'll turn off that warning and they'll keep turning off that warning and it precedes a crash because they keep going, well, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. How many of us have done that with our tired warning? Our, we, we, we're fatigued and we're experiencing that. We're seeing it in our life with our family and everything else, but we keep turning off the warning and then eventually we hit that point of exhaustion. We don't have anything left to give. What does that look like when it happens to a Christian? If, if you have your Bible and you want to follow along with me, we're going to spend most of our time in 1 Kings 19. By the way, as you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about tonight. I really hope you come back tonight because this message, God has laid it on my heart, and I really am excited to talk to you about what do you do when you love somebody who's emotionally unhealthy? Because that will happen to all of us. If you're not dealing with it right now, um, it will be something you'll have to deal with at some point. So how do we follow God's example in loving an emotionally unhealthy person? I hope you'll come back and, and we can explore that together uh, tonight. First Kings 19, 1 through 8, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Let's talk about what Elijah had done. Now, I told you that being burned out doesn't mean you're weak, and it can strike a strong Christian. If, Elijah, if anybody was an example biblically in the Old Testament of strength, Elijah was a picture of strength. Elijah had to deal with King Ahab. Now, quickly, Elijah's job, he had one of two God jobs at the time. There were the priests and the prophets. Those were two God, jobs that God um, had for interfacing with his people. The priest's job was to represent God's people to God. And the prophet's job was to represent God to God's people. 
Sometimes that job was easier than other times. Elijah happened to come in as a prophet when it was a very hard job because he had to say some very difficult things. Every once in a while the message that God has to deliver to his people is not really fun to hear because God's people are in trouble. And Elijah had to do that. On top of that he had to deal with King Ahab. Now Ahab was a hot mess. The Bible tells us Ahab was the worst king that Israel ever had. And that's saying something because Israel had some bad kings. He was, he was a mess. On top of that, his Bible says his wife was worse than he was. He married a woman named Jezebel. There's a reason, folks, why we don't name our daughters Jezebel. <laughs> she was a real mess. Now, Ahab knew about the real God, but instead he and Jezebel were into this God called Baal. Now, Baal, see how this strikes you in 21st century America. Baal was the God of sex and prosperity. There were gods for this and gods for that, gods for rain, God, God for rain, God for crops, God for this. And God. Baal was the God of sex and prosperity. One of the reasons why people love to worship Baal is because they got to do things related to sex and prosperity that God would not allow them to do. And God's people kept going back and forth. Do I want to you know, serve Baal and get to do some of the fun stuff that God won't let me do, or do I want to serve God? And they would go waffle back and forth. And this is what Elijah was dealing with. And Ahab and Jezebel were on the front lines of this Baal worship thing. And so often God had Elijah delivering to Ahab, who's a very dangerous man, some messages that I wouldn't want to have to deliver. Elijah was a strong guy. He would show up and say, hey, buddy, there ain't going to be any rain because you're a mess. And God says, there ain't going to be any rain. I'll let you know when the rain's going to happen again. That literally, if you want to talk about, uh, this is not something a milk toast guy does. To show up in Ahab's court and tell him this is, is kind of a big deal. He's a strong guy. Elijah's a strong guy. During the season when he's, when he's in hiding from Ahab because God places him there, Elijah's a Spartan fellow. He puts up, I mean, he, he's, he's Spartan. I mean, the Bible says that God feeds him at one point with birds. Birds will bring him food and drop it off for him to eat. Now that's gross, but it's cool. This is the kind, of, I mean, he's not, he's not somebody who needs life to be super even and easy. He's a guy who can deal with stress. He's a guy who can deal with a challenge. He gets to the point where he says, you know, enough is enough. God, the, the people of Israel are going to have to decide who they're going to worship. So he has the showdown at Mount Carmel. What happens is, now at this point, Elijah feels like he's God's only prophet left. And Baal has 450 prophets. Now what happened was Jezebel opened up the first seminary of Baal. She's like, I, you know, God has some prophets. God has, I'm, I need, need me some prophets. I'm going to start. So she gets this, and she turns out the first graduating class of the Jezebel seminary. 450 prophets for Baal. By the way, just because, this is important for us to understand 21st century America, just because somebody says they represent God doesn't mean that they do. Really important that we're clear on that. So here, here you have the prophets of Baal and Elijah. It's an unfair fight. They show up on the Mount Carmel, and Elijah says, here's what we're going to do. We're both going to build up a, a, uh, an altar, and we're going to put a, a bull on it, and we're each going to pray. And whoever sends down fire from heaven, could we all just agree that would have to be God? So if God is God, if, if Baal's God, then Baal send down fire from heaven. If God is God, God will send down fire from heaven, and they agreed to this. So uh, Elijah said, well, there's 450 of you. Guess it's going to take you all a little longer to pray than me. I'll let you all go first. So they spend the better portion of the day going around trying to pray, get Baal to, to send down fire. Doesn't work because there is no such, I mean, Baal's not a, Baal's not a god. Baal's in a human invention. Humans have been in the business of inventing gods for a long time. And he's praying for, they're praying and praying. They actually had an idea that pain got God's attention, so they would cut themselves, the Bible said, to the extent that the Bible says that the blood flowed. It's a scary thought if you think about it. Now, Elijah, he's a crusty old fella, and he starts to have a little fun with him. 
And he says, well, you know what, maybe, maybe Bale went on vacation. I mean, maybe he went to Disney. He's at Universal Studios, he's checking out the rides, he can't hear you because he's, you know, he's having a good time, he's awake. Or perhaps he's asleep and you just aren't yelling loud enough. Maybe if you yelled a little bit louder, or now you can't make this stuff up. It's in the Bible, you can't make it up. He, he says, actually, perhaps he's gone to visit the celestial toilet. I mean, maybe he's just been in there a while and hasn't heard you, you know, so maybe if you keep on going. And then after a while, he's had his fun. He's like, all right, that's enough you guys, you jokers over there trying to do this. It hasn't worked out. And Elijah prays a very simple, very short prayer, asking God to show who he is. And God sends down fire. Now, this is after Elijah has them dig a trench around the altar and pour 12 buckets of water on the sacrifice. Now, I'm no barbecue expert. But it seems to me if you want a bull carcass to catch on fire, pouring 12 buckets of water over, it's not a great idea. Why is Elijah doing this? Because he wants people to understand this isn't a magic show. They needed to know that no human being was going to be able to do this. They needed to know there was no trickery. This was God doing it. And God really obliged because when God sent fire, the Bible says it was so strong that it burned up the sacrifice, the wood the sacrifice was on, licked up all the water in the trench, and somehow God is going to have to explain this to me someday. It burned up the stones on the altar. Literally, God just left a scorched mark on the earth where that, where that was. That's, for me, that's, I would think that's a successful day. I mean, this is all Elijah's ever hoped for. The 450 prophets of Baal are killed. Finally, the people of Israel are saying, all right, we're going to worship the true God. By the way, it's interesting how quickly people can get on God's side and then how quickly they can forget. They were on God's side there briefly. So word gets back to Jezebel that her 450 prophets have been killed. She's not real happy about that. But I want you to keep in mind, Elijah has always been under threat of death from Ahab and Jezebel. This isn't new. This isn't new. But today, in 1 Kings 19, it'll be the last straw. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. You'd think, knowing Elijah's track record, that he would shake that off. He's always been under threat of death. It's not, not that big a deal. But I'll tell you, as somebody who studied burnout, and especially my, my work has mostly been with burnout in pastors and ministers and clergy, when I talk to pastors who have had a, a sort of almost like what, what in the old days you would call a nervous breakdown, this is what, what you're going to see Elijah having is a nervous breakdown. There's always a last straw. There's always a thing they can point to. And it's not usually necessarily a big thing, but it's, it's, it's something that finally snaps. And that's what happens with Elijah. The Bible says that he ran for his life. Hmm. I want to make the point that just because someone has always been able to handle something doesn't mean they will always be able to handle it in the future. See, the thing is, we are always using these energy resources that God has given us, and sometimes we can think that just because I've been able to bear up under the load up until today, I will always be able to bear up under the load. But the important thing is to understand that God made us as finite human beings. One of the most emotionally healthy things we can do is to embrace our finiteness and to know that we are limited. Elijah did three things that burned out Christians do. If you took note, if you're taking notes, the first thing that Elijah did that burned out Christians do is he moved in the opposite direction of his calling. So what I'm going to show you here, this is, a, this is in verse 3. When he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah. It's important, we'll come to that in a second. And left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. Well, if you, if you understand the kingdom of Israel started off as a united kingdom, one nation together. 
under King Saul and King David, King Solomon. King Solomon's son was a real nutcase. And he, his dad had put some bad procedures in place toward the end of his life. And instead of rectifying that problem, Solomon's son doubled down, made it worse. And under his leadership, the kingdom divided. So when you're reading in the Old Testament, if it seems as though Israel has two kings, it kind of does because there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Northern kingdom is called Israel, southern kingdom is called Judah. So prophets typically had one of the kingdoms that they were working with in, and, and Elijah was working in the northern, northern kingdom. That was where God had called him. That's where he was functioning. But I want you to notice that when this happened and when he snapped on the inside, look at where he went. First off, the Bible says that he traveled all the way south into the southern kingdom through Judah. He goes to Beersheba, which is very close to the southern part of Judah. He leaves his servant there, and the Bible says he went further on into the desert. He literally left Israel proper. He left the entire divided kingdom. He went away from everything God had called him to do. He moved away from his calling. You say, now, Jonathan, I'm, I'm not a pastor. I'm, I'm not in the ministry. I don't have a calling to run away from. Oh, no, 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 no. God has a calling in your life. Every God follower has a calling on their life. I remember sitting with a funeral director in my city whom I, I have tremendous respect for, and we were talking about people's calling to ministry, and I guess I, something in what I said gave the impression that um, I thought only pastors were called to ministry, and I remember him tugging on my coat sleeve and saying, you know, I'm called to this just as much as you are. You, no, you have a calling, but when we get burned out, we move away from our calling. Why? Well, for a few things. When we're exhausted, we tend to be focused on our failures. Look at this. He says, I am not better. This is in verse 4. He said, I'm not better than my father's. Start to say, you know what? I haven't been successful. I've never met a burned out pastor that I've worked with in the years that I've done this that hasn't told me that they haven't had any success. They will suddenly write off any of the success that they've had and only focus on failure. That's one of the things that exhaustion does to us. As we look at our life and we only see the things that we regret and we don't see the positive things. It's one of the reasons why we go away from our calling. Why would we continue to be motivated to work on our calling if we don't think that we're being successful? And the thing about it is, this is an absolute rejection of God's truth, because God wants us to know that in His strength, what does the Bible say? Paul said, when I am weak, then I am what? Strong. But what Satan wants you to think is, when I am weak, I am a failure. And then I don't experience God's strength in those moments. Second thing is, when we're exhausted, we tend to be fatalistic about our future. He said, it is enough now, O Lord. I did a sermon not too long ago at New Spring on suicidality. You might think, Jonathan, how weird for you to talk about suicide in, in church. I think, the, I, I, I think the platforms of the churches of the United States of America is where we should be talking about suicidality. Look, anytime there's a devaluating of life, any devaluation of life is an agenda of Satan. And so if there ever was a place where we need to talk about the value of life and the importance of respecting God's gift of life, it needs to happen in the pulpits of America. We need to be talking about it on a regular basis. But I can tell you from my experience in psychology, there's two messages that a person tends to believe that leads down the road of suicidality. One is that there's no hope for me, and two is there's no future for me. There's no hope for me, there's no future for me. Yesterday in the session we talked about Jeremiah 29, 11. I did talk about it. It's important to look at it in context and see who it's written to. But I do want you to, to know that as a believer in Christ, Jeremiah 29, 11 says you always have a hope and you always have a future. And by the way, those come from God. Third, when we're exhausted, we tend to be obsessed with finding fault. 
Yeah, at first he's kind of negative about himself, but when God asks him what he's doing there, it's an interesting thing because Elijah's out of his zone of calling, and so God comes to him and says, hey, buddy, what you doing here? And, and Elijah has a prepared speech. And a big part of his speech is this, I've been very jealous, this is verse 10, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. It's funny, there's, it's almost like there's a season where we're down on ourselves. but if we were to be honest with ourselves, when we're exhausted, we start to get down on everybody else. And we start to see failure wherever we look, not just our own failure, but we see everybody else's failure, and we tend to shift blame. Well, if they had done this, or if they had done this differently, or if this had happened this way, or whatever, like, a lot of us have that blame thrower where it's like, it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault, and God can't do much with that, because the thing about it is, as long as we will take responsibility for our part, God will deal with the other part. I think Elijah was forgetting that. Second thing that burned out Christians do, this is what Elijah did, he isolated himself from those he needed most. He sent a servant away. A servant would have been somebody who worked with him every day of his ministry. He sent a servant away. By the way, sometimes people will hear me talk about this and they'll say, well, Jonathan, what about solitude? Isn't solitude important? I mean, Jesus went to Gethsemane to pray by himself. Well, make sure you read that passage well about Jesus going to Gethsemane. This is Matthew 26, 36. Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane and said unto his disciples. By the way, did you notice he came with the disciples to Gethsemane and said unto the disciples, sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And then he does what? He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then he said unto them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch what? With me. Right? And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cut pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but thou wilt. You need three circles, right? There is me and God. That is the closest. That is, that is solitude. At some point, it'll, there will be conversations that are just between me and God. But I also need my best friends. So you have Peter, J James, and John, which is another circle that is outside of him. That He did not push them away. He brought them with. Now, he went a little further. So at that moment, there was a, an even deeper level of intimacy and, and solitude between him and God. And yet, he did not push away his best friends, they were there. And then outside of that were the other disciples, which is yet another group of friends that are maybe not as close as the closest friends, and those people he wants there as well. If you're exhausted, you need all of that. You need the moments of intimacy between you and God, but you also need your best friends, and you cannot afford to push them away. You need them with you, keeping watch. Jesus said, keep watch with me. What does it mean to keep watch? Well, here, Jesus is getting ready to be arrested. There is stress in watching for this, and he's saying, I need you to bear up under the stress with me. There are too many things in life that we just are not called to carry alone, and sometimes we need to know, who is it that is somebody who will bear up under the stress with me, and who will, who will be here with me? Number three, I told you that we're talking about three things that burned out Christians do. Third thing is he tried to help God do his job. When I was a kid, I used to watch Beverly Hillbillies. They'd come on in the afternoon, reruns, you know. Well, they had to be reruns because I wasn't there. That was a little before I discovered America when that show was on. But um, so Beverly Hillbillies, kind of a corny old show, but the, the dad character in that show, Jed, he had that nephew Jethro, Jethro who was just stupid, you know. And Jethro would try to fix something, and Jed would always say, don't help me, boy. Don't help me, you know. And it was kind of like, I, I don't need you to get into the, how many of us have learned that if you try to fix something you don't understand, you'll generally make it worse? That's what I've learned trying to do home repairs. 
Sometimes you just have to call the right person. I, I walk into Home Depot and I have this, this male sense of invincibility. I walk into that place and I think I could probably rebuild my home with the stuff just right here, you know. And then I go mess something up because if you try to fix something you don't understand, you'll make it worse. But Elijah was trying to tell God how to fix something. By the way, Martha did the same thing. She also was dealing with burnout. And she went in and told Jesus how he needed to handle the situation with her sister. But look at what Elijah does. Elijah instructs God. By the way, anytime we find ourselves instructing God to do something, we have forgotten who is who. I went to, I, I wasn't even planning to say this. I've never said this in a message before, but I recently went to the hospital to be there for a mom and dad whose small child had developed a, an infection in the brain and it looked like he wasn't going to live. And there was... I was there to, to pray with this family, and then there was a pastor that another family member had brought in from a slightly more charismatic um, uh, denomination, and he came in and, and he said, we, de- we demand in the name of Jesus that this, son, that, this person be, that this baby be restored and so forth. He kept saying stuff, and I thought, we don't have the ability to demand anything of God. We can't tell God how to do his job. All we can do is we can ask God to intervene in the way that he sees fit best in a situation. But look at what Elijah says. This is in verse 4. After he goes and sits down under that juniper tree, he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He's saying, you know what, God? I'm just going to tell you how to, how to deal with this. This whole, this whole thing is hopeless, so you need to clean house. Take me out. By the way, what has generally happened when Elijah has prayed for something? That's happened. I mean, on Elijah's prayer, a boy was restored to life. On Elijah's prayer, fire came down from heaven. On Elijah's, I mean, when he prays for stuff, usually it happens. What do you think he thought was going to happen when he prayed for death? This, this was not a melodramatic moment. I truly believe that when he prayed and said, God, take my life, I honestly believe he, he felt like God was going to turn out his lights. And he apparently was okay with, Elijah is as close to a suicidal individual as we have in the scripture. I've had people tell me, certainly no Christian could get so low that they would think about taking their life. That's ridiculous. It's right here. It's right here. It's important to recognize that God sees the whole picture. I've sat with people in my office who didn't think they needed to go on. They'll say ridiculous things to me, like my family would be better off without me. I don't, you know, I'm not contributing anything. I I don't, I'm not a productive member of society. Nobody needs me. By the way, all of those things are lies from the pit of hell. Um, But you know, one of the reasons why we think those things is we have such a limited picture of, of what's going on. We only have today's snapshot. God has the whole video. He knows exactly how this whole thing is gonna play out. If you project yourself back to the worst day of your life, if you were to assume that that the rest of your life was going to be like that worst day, I think any of us could be in that place where we'd say, I just can't go on. But isn't it true that God has a way of restoring us? We, We have those difficult days, but God brings us out of them. That's one of the things that's so great about a Christian's testimony. Sometimes people say, I don't know how to share my faith. Let me tell you what, all, all you have to do is share with somebody what Jesus has done for you. You want to share your faith. People are like, oh, I'm worried they'll ask me a question I don't have the answer to. Let me tell you, don't, religious, religious questions are a complete waste of time for everybody involved. If we're going to get into a debate, if somebody wants to debate me, then that's not the kind of person I should be trying to reach anyway. If they want to get into a, you know, if, if, if they're just looking for somebody to argue with, I'm not interested. If you want to reach people for Jesus, just tell people about what Jesus has done in your life. Tell them how you found Jesus. That'll, that'll do it. In the moments I have left, can I just show you what God's response to a burned out Christian is? 
Verse 5, as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him. Some people believe this angel was a Christophany, uh, pre-incarnate Christ. I, I don't know. We don't have enough in the scripture to say. Said unto him, arise and eat. That's an interesting thing to say. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals, and a cruise of water at his head, and he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time, and touched him, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose, and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat for forty days and forty nights, unto Horeb, the mount of God. Now, by the way, a lot to cover here. We'll come back to it in a second. I want to finish reading this passage. Verse 11, And he said, Go forth, and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire. We're kind of just going through the list of natural disasters, aren't we? I mean, just kind of one at a time. The Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entering in of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, what doest thou here, Elijah? It's the same question that God's been asking him up to this point. Well, what are you doing here? And Elijah gives him his speech. I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altar, slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, go return on, the, on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be a king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shephat of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazael will Jehu slay, and him that escapeth the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me 7,000. What did Elijah say? There's not a single person who respects God here but me. He says, yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. All right, quickly, because my time is limited. How did God address a burned out Christian? Number one, you need to address your physical health needs. Notice, if you will, that the first thing, before anything else, God had Elijah eat, he had him sleep, and he made him take a long walk. What happens a lot of times is the more stress we deal with, the less we pay attention to our physical needs. But it's important to remember that we have these bodies on loan. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. One of your staff members was kind enough to loan me his vehicle yesterday, and I drove it to the hotel and um, made, made one quick errand yesterday evening. And what you should know is that I'm a slob, so if you were to look in my car back home, it's a mess. And it generally doesn't take me much longer than 30 minutes to absolutely mess up a car. But if you were to go look at that staff member's car who loaned it to me, you would find it exactly as I received it. Why? Because it's not my car. And I realize I have it on loan and I want to respect that. What the Bible's telling us is once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's not my body anymore. It's God's body. So I have it on loan. Now, if I could treat it any, any way I wish, then... I could be as haphazard as I sometimes am with my body. But the thing is, my body actually belongs to God. So I have to think about how I'm taking care of my body. And working with people over the years, I've talked to them about code RED, R-E-D. Uh, the first is rest. R stands for rest. You need seven and a half hours of restful sleep a night. I say that. People roll their eyes at me and go, there's no way. But you need it. So if you're not getting it, you need to look into in improving your sleep hygiene. That's a good first step. If that doesn't work, then talking to your doctor and finding out what can we do to get you seven and a half hours of restful sleep a night. I promise you, sleep is the foundation of your health. If sleep is, is not properly, if you're not getting the proper amount of sleep or the proper quality of sleep, what you will find is that everything else is compromised. 
E stands for exercise. Now I know some of you guys in this room are, are bodybuilders and lift tons of weights. As you can tell, I'm that way as well. Um, <laughs> But seriously, going to the gym and lifting weights is not the kind of exercise that's going to help you in this sense. You need to do something that gets your heart uh, going at an ideal level for 20, 30 minutes. If you take a power walk four times a week, you will see major improvements. And we, we actually know that in, in some instances, um, the proper amount of exercise done in the proper way can be even more effective than SSRIs for depression. And I'm, I, I feel I have no problems with SSRIs for depression, but it's very interesting to see exercise be even more effective than medication in some cases. Who, who knew, right? And then D stands for diet. You want to get your diet as anti-inflammatory as you can possibly get it. Whatever you can do to make sure that you're being cautious about um, sugar, make sure that you're being cautious about um, inflammation causing foods. By the way, you know what one of the most anti-inflammatory diets that is out there is? It's the Mediterranean diet, which is what Jesus would have eaten while he was on this earth. Very interesting. Rest, exercise, and diet. You need to take care of our bodies. Number two, you need to alter your path. The Lord said unto him, verse 15, go return on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. One of my favorite Bible translators says, that a good way of, of translating this into modern English would be, go back the way you came. See, the thing about it is, if you, if you walk a bad path, the difficult thing about it is you will have to cover every step you walk down a bad path in reverse if you want to get back on a good path. And God is saying, you need to take a minute and think about the steps that got you here. That's what God kept asking Elijah, what are you doing here? This isn't where I called you to be. This isn't, this isn't the center of where you need to be. What are you doing here? And then he says, you're going to have to go back the way you came. So for those of us who are burned out, we have to ask ourselves, what were the decisions that I made that got me to this point of exhaustion? What were the steps that got me to this place where I just am completely empty of energy? And I need to I need to walk the opposite direction. Number three, you need to align or realign your thinking with the truth. One of the things that's so difficult about the postmodern culture is we have this idea that there is no such thing as truth. And the Bible says that one of the most profound statements in the Bible, Bible scholars tell us that one of the most profound statements in the Bible was Jesus' statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So if there is no such thing as absolute truth, then Jesus was a liar. Those are only, those are only two choices. So respecting the truth, what do I mean by respecting the truth? Verse 18, God says to him, yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel. He's like, I have 7,000 people who are on my side. I think what God is saying is be cautious. Let God be the determiner of the truth. When we start saying things to ourselves, our self-talk is very important. When we start saying things to ourselves that are not God's truth, we, we're going to end up in trouble. Number four, you need to approach, approach your purpose again. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but, but suffice it to say that one of the things that happens when we get burned out is we forget what we exist to do. And one of the most important things we need to do is go back to step one. Go back to the drawing board. What is it that I need to do in my life? What has God called me to? And then number five, you need to allow others to play an important role in your life. Notice that immediately God has Elijah go and anoint Elisha. By the way, I think it's very interesting because Elijah asks God multiple times to kill him, and God actually never responds. Kind of. He doesn't respond in words. It's interesting. You have the, the, the fire and the earthquake and the storm. Kind of nice that he threw a tornado in there for us Kansas people. Um, but you have, all, you have all these different things. And when I was in Bible college, I went to Pensacola for a couple of years. Some of y'all have connections with Pensacola. I remember a chapel speaker getting up and, and being very eloquent about the symbolism of the earthquake and the symbolism of the fire and the symbolism of the... I don't think it's symbolism. Once again, I think Elijah figured, if I prayed for God to kill me, he's going to kill me. And, uh, you know, God told Elijah, go stand on the mountain. And I think he thought, oh, well, that's where God's going to do it. 
I'm going to go up there on the mountain. That's where God's going to kill me. And then there was an earthquake. Well, that makes sense. You kill somebody with an earthquake. Or you know, then there was a fire. Well, okay, I'm going to die in the fire. Here's what I think God was trying to tell Elijah. If I wanted to take you out, you understand there are plenty of ways I could do that. I think that was God reminding Elijah who was God and who was Elijah. See, the thing is, if you have a pulse, you have a purpose. God has something for you to do. I'd like to close with this. John, 4, John 1, 4 through 5, there's a, John is kind of using a metaphor for Jesus. He uses the term word, logos. He's talking about who Jesus was. And in verse 4 and 5, he says this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not, meaning that the darkness cannot overcome the light. I remember being in that um, salt mine, and I remember the tour guide turning on a flashlight. It is surprisingly powerful how uh, one little light is surprisingly powerful in a completely dark room. It, we almost lose track of how powerful one single light can be. Can I just tell you, the, the, the message of the scripture is the light wins. There, there was a book written some time ago that was, the title was Love Wins. Uh, I, I have to tell you, I, I didn't read the book. Um, but I, I heard friends talk to me about it. I, I think there was a push, especially in that day and age, and now it's not just a push, it's a, it's a train, freight train bearing down on everybody to say the, the Church of Jesus Christ needs to recognize um, that we need to adapt and change, our, change some viewpoints um, because ultimately God is a God of love, and so we need to look at every situation that, you know, we need to reevaluate our position on certain scriptural things in, in the light of that. Certainly God is love, but love also includes truth, right? The Bible, God is love, and the Bible says Jesus came full of what? Full of grace and truth. Love is what? Love is a combination of grace and truth, right? But let me tell you, whether love wins or not, that's, that's an interesting brand, and, and I think it's an interesting thought. But I'll tell you this, light wins. That is a scriptural concept, that when there is a battle between light and darkness, light wins. Because the light can overcome the darkness, but darkness cannot envelop light. It cannot make light go away. That's the point. So here's the thing I want to tell you. If you're a God follower, you have the light living inside of you. And so it doesn't matter. It could be that today just feels so, like you're going through something and nobody else around you knows what you're going through and it's so heavy and it's so difficult and sometimes it just makes you feel like you want to quit. But I'm telling you, there's light inside of you. And the darkness isn't going to be able to overcome that. You're going to survive this. That's one of the first things I tell pastors who end up working with me because they're in trouble. One of the things I tell you will get through this. You're going to get through this. And by the way, as the body of Christ, that's a message that we need to remind each other. We will get through what we're going through, right? And in a second, I'm going to pray and, I'm, and Pastor Ryan's going to come up. But I want to tell you this. If you're a person in this room and you say, you know what, I, I like everything you were talking about, but the truth is I don't, I don't have that in my life because I've never really connected with Jesus Christ. Can I tell you the greatest news anybody will ever be able to tell you? That is that God has already done all the heavy lifting. Having a relationship with Jesus is not difficult. Jesus did the difficult part by dying on the cross to pay for the things that we've done wrong. All, all of my past mistakes, all my future mistakes, Jesus paid for those. That was the hard part. There's only one part Jesus cannot do. He cannot say yes for you. Because if he said yes for you, it wouldn't be a relationship. A forced relationship is no relationship at all. He waits there and says, do you want a relationship with me? And he's waiting for a yes from you. I hope that if you've never said yes to Jesus, that you'll make that choice today. Most important choice you'll ever make in your entire life. 
Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.